Odd. So, okay. Uh, let's, let's turn to God's Word. It's in your bulletin and on the screen. I'll read the odd. You read the even. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are not in trouble like others, they are not afflicted like most people. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, the imaginations of their hearts run wild. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, How can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? If I had said, decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. Until, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. When I became embittered and my inmost being was wounded, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good job, y'all. Good job reading this morning. You ever wondered what we're doing here? <laughs> you know, if you were driving by this building with a friend who's from, let's say, somewhere where they've never seen a church. They don't know what worship is. They had no clue what happens in this place. And they were curious, what would you liken this to? I mean, is it like a TED Talk or a concert or a workshop? I mean, if you think about it, we do all kinds of things in this place that we do in other places. So there are places where you do hear somebody lecture uh, there are other places you go to where you sing out loud. There are other places that you go to to have a snack. <laughs> but nowhere do you do all that at the same time. And it's, it's, it's weird what we do here. It's weird what we do in worship together. And I want us to think about this this morning. We're, we're in a six-week series on our new mission statement, which is posted right up here on the wall behind me. And as I said last week, uh, mission statements, I'm not the biggest fan for them. 
for churches because the church isn't like any other organization. This isn't Walmart. This isn't Chick-fil-A. We're not selling hot wings or Hondas. Uh, And yet, the language of mission came originally from Scripture, not from marketing uh, strategies or business schools. This is Bible language. And so I think it's really helpful, often like in all areas of life, to know our why. Why are we doing what we're doing? So we, we as a elders and a larger group of leadership wrote this mission statement and have passed it this winter. And it goes like this. CTK exists to develop dis- disciples who delight in Jesus in worship, are discovering Jesus in community, are displaying Jesus' kingdom in our lives. And five Ds, develop disciples who delight, discover, display. And this morning, we're going to look at this, dis- delighting in Jesus in worship. And what is that supposed to mean? What does that do? And Psalm 73 is really, really helpful for us. Because the writer here, Asaph, shows us what are essentially like three head-on collisions that we pray happen every time we come and worship with God's people. That there should be as jolting, I'm using that word head-on collision purposely, startling, jolting, uh, knocks you out of the direction you're going to a different direction. All of that. So we're going to look at these uh, collisions that happened this morning. And here's the first one. Life confuses, worship restores. Let me, let me look at this. So uh, this psalmist, as we read this, you can hear him bristling. Can you feel the anger in this? I mean, you, you read that so nicely. I have a feeling these words were shouted. Because the psalmist here is shouting, is angry, is upset. And, and not just about the injustice in the world out there, but like what's right in his face? His people are suffering. He's suffering. He's struggling. Here's what the psalmist is upset about. You know, he feels like everybody around him, he looks at, their stock is rising, his is falling. You know, their lives, lives of people who don't know God, they seem bulletproof. Seems like everything is just going well, right? I mean, they have great vacations. They have awesome bodies. Their kids are doing great. Everything seems to be going well for them. The anti-God people are just prospering in health and wealth, and they're cocky. And, you know, I can identify with this, can't you? Like something's not right in the house of God. Something's not right. It seems like God has allowed some incongruities out there. There's some contradictions for the way things should be. I thought, God, you were good to your people, but where can I see that? That's what he's asking. Can you feel the anger? You feel the struggle. If that didn't hit a chord with you today, that's okay. That's okay. You know, I'm glad to hear it. Maybe this psalm doesn't resonate because this man's professed theology is crashing on the rocks of what is around him, of everything that he sees. And it all seems to be falling apart. And maybe life for you this morning is puppies and kittens. Any puppies and kittens out there? Okay. Maybe a couple of you. You know, um, everything's just going great for you. But let me warn you, you know, if that's the case... I hope you can still feel some of the shock value of what's happening in this psalm. Now, some of that's related to who wrote it. Asaph, the writer of the psalm, it's not King David. We think of David writing most of the psalms in our Psalter. Asaph wrote this, but Asaph is like cream of the crop. So there's this one little tribe 
that gets set apart to be worship leaders. And of that, there's one little clan that gets set up to be the best of the best worship leaders. And Asaph is summa cum laude worship leader in Israel. This is a household name in Israel. This is a name everybody knows. I want you to think Christendom today, Christian subculture world. I mean, do y'all know the name Tim Keller? Anybody know the name Tim Keller? Okay, some of y'all know that. Uh, some of y'all named Beth Moore. Anybody know Beth Moore? Okay, uh, Chris Tomlin, right? Rick Warren. These are this kind of name in Israel. And this is the guy, Asaph, key worship leader in Israel. And this is what's as for me, Asaph here, as for me, my foot almost slipped. My, my thoughts were going crazy. My heart was strained. You know, I've been in a dark frame of mind. When you've tried to do right, and other people, even people who love the Lord, do wrong to you. When you've tried to do right and honor God and everything seems to be falling apart, right? And you want to ask God, God, why? This is where Asaph is. My feet almost slipped. It'd be like Tim Keller saying, you know, guys, you know all that stuff I've been preaching for years? I'm not sure I believe that anymore. Do you hear the shock of that? It'd be like Beth Moore showing up at a family funeral or Rick Warren and saying, all that stuff I've taught for years and years, I don't know, y'all. I think I'm kind of done with it. That's the level of shock value you're supposed to hear off this psalm. This is Asaph for crying out loud. And here's the truth for us. Your tenure in church doesn't protect you from the incongruities of life. The incongruities of like, this is what I believe, but this is what I see. You know, the longevity you have, a theological degree, a position of leadership in the church, your faithfulness over generations and the faithfulness of your family, it does not protect you from the heart, does it? Is there anybody in the house this morning? But does anybody know what I'm talking about here this morning? Yes. Right? I mean, you know, it is, it's hard. It doesn't mean you don't wrestle with God. And so here's Asaph. He has a problem. Asaph has a big problem. His professed theology, his lived experience, they don't line up. They don't line up. And um, he looks all around and says, what's the point? Why have I done all this? He, he catalogs all his frustrations right here. Uh, and Asaph knows God can handle his questions, his wrestling. He, he's not so sure about everybody else, right? He says, uh, he, says but, uh, he, he says, I don't know if I can say this stuff out loud, but this is what he's feeling, right? He's saying, um, have I wasted my time trying to please God? Uh, I'm, I'm afflicted all day long. It seems hopeless, right? And, and in other words, he says, God can handle this. On some level, he knows I got to take this stuff. I got to vocalize this stuff to God. And when life strikes, I, I want to just press this with you this morning. When life strikes and it's hard, the Christian thing is not to pretend. Look at Asaph. He models for us this bone deep honesty of this is hard, guys, and I don't know what to do. I mean, this psalm, do you, do you, does it make you wonder? This psalm could have been written in 20, was it written 2023 BC or AD? Because some of us, we know this. We know what this is like. So some of you, you know, you come here this morning, you have no questions, and good for you. I'm, I'm glad that, that maybe some of y'all, you got it kind of tied up. But can I speak for the rest of us? We got questions, y'all. And I think we're in good company when we have questions about what God's up to in the world. You, know, you, you read your Bible, and you're like, David, who's like, why, why are the nations rage and plot and scheme? And they seem to be triumphing, Psalm 2. You see, Jesus on the cross, he had some questions. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, if you never have any questions about God and his ways and what's happening in this life, uh, keep on living. It'll come. You know, if you live long enough, you will be like Asaph. I almost slipped. You know, I'm not sure I could have kept going. And, and this is the first answer. This is the first head-on collision for why we worship. Why do we come to worship? We come because life confuses. It's confusing. And we need a word from the Lord. And looking on the inside doesn't really help. And looking on the outside makes it worse sometimes. It confuses us. So what do we do? When real life and right theology don't match up, this is what we this is what we see from Asaph. You better learn how to look up. You better learn how to look up. This is what you get when you come to church. You remember that what you observe is not all there is. What you observe is not all there is. Now, let me, let me show you something. This, the psalm starts off with a, a way we would never start off an email. Uh, it starts off with the word nevertheless. Can you imagine writing an email to somebody in your office? Nevertheless, they'd be like, what are you talking about? That's because... Asaph is having an argument on the inside. He's debating back and forth. You know, nevertheless, God seems good, but not so sure about this. Everything I see tells me something different. And then the psalm sort of hinges on verse 17. But, but until, until I came into worship. And the, the word there in, in the Hebrew, uh, and I'm not so great at Hebrew, but like, all the commentators say, this is like a full stop sign with blinking lights around it stop sign. It's like, wait, hit the brakes really hard. This is where there's a violent disruption until I came to worship. And this is what he does. He goes, I see this and this and this. I see, you know, the, the, this is when, uh, back when, uh, before thin was in, this is like fat is good right? They're bulging in fatness. These people were well-fed. Their lives are going well. Everything seems to be going well from them until I laid this up. I made a tally. Uh, I made a list, pros and cons. I listed both of the things. I said, which one of these is greater? All these things that are happening to all these people or God. And he says, until I came into worship, then I could say God is good. God is good. He remembers in worship that God is good beyond all the consistencies of life, beyond what he observes of the rest of the world. You know, what worship does, what worship does, what we're doing here, one of the things it does is it helps us to see differently. It helps us to assess, to calculate on something other than what we see around us. Right? What we see around us, if you live by mere observation, you will never calculate the goodness of God. Am I right? You look around, and you're like, this is it? This is the goodness of God? But what Asaph comes to say is that he can't, when he can't make sense of what he sees, worship reminds him of what he knows. It reminds him of what he knows deep within. And don't let what you observe make you let go of what you know to be true of who God is. You don't have all the information don't let the fact that you are not omniscient, you don't know how this is going to work out, you don't know what God's up to, you don't see where God's hand is at work in this world, don't let the fact that you don't see him lead you to the conclusion he's gone. He doesn't care. If life is not lived by observation, then how do we live life? 
Life is lived by revelation. What God says, because we have limited sight. We see what's right in front of us today. If I could take you back 10 years and say, on this day, can you remember what you were worried about on this Sunday morning? You can't remember. Most of us can't remember because we think about what's right in front of us, what we can see right in front of us. We look around, we see other people's outsides, and we compare them to how we feel on our insides. We look at their outsides and we say, everything's going well on the outside of their life. What they are experiencing is really different from what I feel. So God can't be good. You know, years ago, I'm old enough where we got our traffic reports from a helicopter for years. And you'd, we'd tune in to the radio and you'd listen to the, the traffic report, which would tell you, you could hear the, the chopper in the background, right? You could hear them. And they're telling you what roads are clogged up, where the accidents are, what's the way around them. This was really important if you live in a big city. Now, nowadays, you've got one of those smartphones that can tell you exactly how to get around. You know, it tells you Waze or Google Maps or Apple Maps. It'll tell you what's the best way to get from point A to point B. But the maps, and the, the, the apps and the t helicopter work the same way. You know, neither of them eliminate congestion. Neither of them uh, cause there to be no more delays in your, you know, or construction. Neither of them can magically make that stuff disappear, but they can tell you how to safely reroute to get to the right place in the best time. You know, this is what happens when we come to worship. We tune into the frequency. We pull out the app. We hear God saying, like, look, I'm not, I, I'm not necessarily going to eliminate all the construction and all the congestion, but I will take you safely home. I will show you the way. There is a way to be with me that I will get you where you need to go. You know, all the data that he has up there, just like the helicopter, eyes in the sky, or the satellites that beam down the data from up above and show us what's going down on the ground. This is what we do when we come to worship. We come in and we remember, oh yeah, I don't have all the data. Because this is what we do. We say to God, hey God, the wicked are prosper prospering. And God says on his traffic report, for now, for now. You know, we say, God, it doesn't make sense what you're doing. And we tune in the traffic report, and God says, I'm still working. All things for your good. We tune into the traffic report. We're saying, like, God, right now I feel abandoned. God's traffic report says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? In that in-the-sky perspective, that's not gonna, that may not change what's hard in your afternoon today. Or what's hard are your worries or insecurities, your doubts about God's goodness. Will he provide? How will he come through? But what they do remind us is that he is with you. He's downloading all the information up above and saying, I, I got it. I can take you there. I know the way. You know, this is why we come to church. You know, nobody's taking attendance. You know, we take, we actually average up the numbers so we know how to plan. But nobody's writing down names of who comes every Sunday. I mean, yes, a few of you who are teenagers are dragged here. But for most of you, you come. Why do you come to worship? We come because we need a head-on collision in the good way. But between observation and revelation. Because everything we see out there, it's confusing. And worship restores us. This is what this is for. Head-on collision. Second, the world interprets worship re-stories. What do I mean by that? 
we, we come to worship because the world interprets. It has a story to tell us of what is real. Look at verses 21 through 22. This is the experience Asaph testified to. He says, I became like an unthinking animal before you. Did you notice that when you read that? How weird that language is? I became like an unthinking animal. Older translations say, I was a brute beast before you. I was a brute beast. Why does he compare himself to an animal? Because an animal lives according to instinct and only according to desires and to today, right now. In his blindness, he's become bitter on the inside. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, in his kidneys. In other words, he's feeling it in his body. He's feeling it deep down inside. He's realized he's been living for the next moment. He's lost his grip on, is there anything else to this? He's lost grip on there being a greater story of God or a greater place in the story. Asaph realizes the whole focus of his face Faith has been wrong. He's just been interested on what God can give him and how God needs to provide for him right now. And he says, I was like a beast. Survival mode. Several years ago, we got a, a, box, a, a box of hand-me-downs from another family in our church. And this happens a lot when you have a lot of boys. So we've gotten a lot of hand-me-downs over the years. And this one box had came in it with a neon yellow sleeveless T-shirt with one thing on, on, on it. It said, beast mode. And it had a, like what looked like a switch that you could push like we do with your mouse. You know, you, like, you take your cursor and switch it to beast mode. And, of course, beast mode is great for the gym or the football field. Well, I, I, I found this T-shirt, and I couldn't wear it, and I gave it to one of my friends who's a rector down the street at Holy Trinity Anglican, John Yates, who's maybe the most, like, Eddie Bauer person I know. Right, not beast mode. Nothing about this guy screams beast mode. I've been backpacking before with him, and he always looks like he had a shower, right? Um, so I gave him this T-shirt, this cut-off T-shirt. I wish I could find a picture. I really looked for a picture. Uh, but anyway, this, I, you know, I love beast mode. Beast mode is what we think of like, this is what we need for the field. This is what we need for the gym. Push it, you know, slide the bar over and go, right? You know, this is what you need. And yet, beast mode is not so good with how we live before God or how we live in this world, right? Animals don't think about the future. Your dog has no 401k. Your cat is not worried about retirement. Humans, we think about the future. You know, animals are not concerned for their appetites and instincts. They aren't thinking of higher things like beauty or loyalty, especially cats. You know, or uh, goodness, or truth, or friendship, or love. They're not thinking on those lines. They're living according to, like, who gives me my next meal? That's who I love, <laughs> right? And animals are not interested in you for you. They don't sit down with you and say, tell me about your week, right? Animals are interested in you for what you do for them. And Asaph is like, man, I've been in beast mode with God in a bad way. I've been living for what's right in front of me, my instincts. I'm interested in him for me, not him for him. I don't want to know God. I want God to provide what I need right now, and I don't understand why he won't. Beast mode. You know, Asaph, like us, he's in beast mode until, verse 23, he comes into worship. And again, this is another hinge in this. He says this, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. He goes into worship, and worship does something to him. And I'm stealing this line from uh, a writer named James K.A. Smith, that worship restores us. It restores us. That was 
Point one. But it restores us. It reminds us, it locates us in God's story. It reminds us that God is the author, that he is writing a grand narrative in this world. It reminds us that we're characters in a larger story. It shows us, when we come into worship, we see, oh, the beauty of the Lord, the glory of the kingdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. Historic Christian worship always has a narrative arc to it. That's why we do a liturgy in our church. Susan described it when she led our um, night of lament recently. That it's like riding a train and you make stops along the line. That's what we do every Sunday. We, we go along this journey together as we come into worship. We're taking all these stops because what happens when you come in here is you're in beast mode and God restores you. He sets you into the story. Now, I'm going to mess up this name. Some of y'all speak French. and Don't make fun of me. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Okay, anyway, the guy who wrote The Little Prince. Can't, I butcher his name, but he's got a great quote about this. He says, you know, if you want to build a ship, you don't drum up people to collect wood. You don't assign them tasks and work. You rather teach them to long for the immensity of the sea. You take them to the beach. You talk about how amazing it is to go across that water. See, there's something about igniting our imagination that takes us out of beast mode. Coming to worship is remembering we're part of something bigger than what's right in front of us. Worship does this by engaging all parts of us. It uses both parts of our brain. We come in and we do things physically. We, we hug each other. We shake hands. We stand up. We sing. We take into ourselves bread and wine. We taste and see that God is good. Every time we do this, this is why worship can take you to another place. And you know, if you look at this psalm, it's, it, it, it reads like a journey. He starts off at the very one saying, God? Question mark. And then he looks around and says, them? And he says, me. And he's like, God, me, me and God. He's going on a journey. And here's the conclusion he comes to. You're always with me. Wait, you're always with me. You, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You're in this story too, God. You guide me with the counsel. You're going to take me on to glory. There's a destination. This isn't meaningless. We're not just chasing our tail, running in circles. You're my greatest treasure. Who have I in heaven and you? But you, earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance, my treasure, my prize. You're what I want. You know, when our leadership chose this new mission statement, we chose these words really carefully. And that word delight, we're talking about delighting in worship, that was really important to us. Delighting has connotations of savoring, of being satisfied, <coughs> being filled up. You know, uh, prizing and praising the second member of the Trinity. You know, the, the Bible has a huge range of appropriate emotions for worship. Thanksgiving, lament, you know, 
sadness, wrestling with God, all these things are appropriate in worship, but our dominant note, we want to sound here. This is the thing when I called, uh, and I called up Danny Yancey and said, Danny, I want you to be our worship director. I said, you got to find the joy button on the CTK dashboard and mash it as hard as you can, as often as you can. He's really good at it. Because our, what we need more than anything else, what I need to restore me, what you need, the collision you need every week, is to be restoried. To remember, beast mode is not all there is. Finally, circumstances isolate. Worship reconnects. Remember how Asaph felt? He was like, I can't say this stuff in church. Now, maybe you feel that way. <clears throat> and it's kind of debatable as to whether that's actually true. You know, would it have really betrayed the children of God if he had said how he really felt around the people of God? I don't know. But that's how he felt. And that's how many of us feel. And this is why we feel so alone in our pain. We don't think anybody can understand. We don't think anybody can hold what we're going through. Does anybody feel this? You know, this is what, why Asaph is isolated. I, I didn't have anybody I could talk to about this. The circumstances, his interpretation of the circumstances made him really, really alone. He felt like he couldn't or shouldn't be honest, and he kept it to himself. You know, this is what happens to us. If we don't think anybody can understand, then we don't give them the chance to. Have you noticed that you do this? I've noticed that you do this. You know, there are a lot of us who are really alone and isolated. And I understand you're tired of being fixed by the Christians. You've had other Christians pull out the Jesus bow and plant it on your pain. There you go. But listen, I've spent years, and I'll tell you this personally, I've spent years running away from vulnerability. I don't like it. I don't like being sad. I don't like talking about it. But when something happens, when Asaph comes to worship, something happens, he reconnects. He reconnects with the Lord and with God's people. He says, listen, he says, as for me, God's presence is my good. Now, we, we've all learned this, right? We, we've all learned how great isolation is. We had a, a three-year-long experiment uh, worldwide in how great isolation is. How great was online worship? Was it just the same? No, not so much, right? How, how great is it like being on a screen and singing? I hate hearing myself sing. I have to come here so y'all can out-sing me so I don't have to hear this. Right? Like, when we come together, what happens when we come together and we sing and we recite and we read together? What we're doing is we're saying the same line. But as for me, God's presence is my good. When I hear you singing, I hear, as for me, God's presence is my good. When I hear you reciting the creeds, I hear, as for me, God's presence is my good. When we gather around the table, I hear you say, as for me, God's presence is my good. When we come together, church, when we do this as a family, it reconnects us to God and to one another. And it's so important. Worship again, it's a head-on collision. It's a testimony. It reconnects us. And at the end of this, this is why Asaph says, I got something to testify about. I got a word to share. We, we, we come and we, we got something to say after being here. Right? Worship again, head-on collision between my isolation and, and this truth 
that God can handle it, and so can the people of God. We need to see Him. You know, every week as you come to worship, I hope you go home a little shell-shocked. Have you ever uh, shown up on a Monday morning at work and somebody says, what happened to you? Right? You're like, well, I had a rough weekend. I hope that every time you show up at work on a Monday morning, somebody says, what happened to you? Well, I went to church yesterday in a good way. The writer Annie Dillard puts it this way. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerless, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? (laughs) Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blindly invoke every Sunday? As I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Churches are like children playing on the floor with chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. What's what's she getting after? She's getting after something that is incredibly powerful that we're doing every Sunday. We're getting in touch as a people with the God of the universe. So here's what I pray your testimony is every week. Something good happened in church this morning. This is what I pray that you say on Monday morning when somebody says, what happened to you? Something good happened in church this Sunday. Something good happened in church this Sunday. Something good happened because I came into a collision with the God of the universe and he lifted up my head. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, would you put knee pads and elbow pads and crash helmets on us and would you crash into us every week? Lord, we pray that you would surprise us, you would startle us, you would wake us up out of our slumber. Lord, you'd raise our heads. You would remind us of who we are and whose we are. You would restore us and restore us, put us back into the story in the right place. Father, connect us to one another and to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I got a question for everybody. My name is Robert Wilson. Yeah. Okay.